Hey everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Praxis Pedagogy Cascadia 21 Special Edition. In this mini-series, I share some space with the Cascadia 21 partners from BC, Washington State, Oregon State, and California. My hope is to not only highlight these wonderful partners who've built this year's Cascadia Open Educational Summit, but to also showcase some incredible work going on in their particular areas within the Cascadia region. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you on the other side. Three, two, one. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Praxis Pedagogy Podcast, Cascadia 21 edition. Glad to have you back with us today. We have Leslie Kennedy from California. Leslie, before I continue on any further, would you mind telling our listeners who you are and where you're from and what you do? Well, thank you, Tim. And hello, everybody. Um, Well, um, it's interesting you say I'm from California. I live in California, but I am not from here. I've moved a lot, um, been all over the world, um, but um, have uh, been here a while now. And uh, and I've been working in a higher education since the 90s in various capacities, one of them being a a full time professor or tenured faculty in a community college system uh, in the Orange County area of California, which um, the main focus was composition and writing for me, my main discipline, and then uh, English as a second language as well. So that's where I get a lot of my interest in equity and access. And that's how I get in segue into what I currently do. Uh, but uh, it's also just actually in my bones from being having been raised in many third world countries and just that um, that uh, perspective on those who don't have as much as others. So that's where I have a real uh, belief in supporting uh, OER and for our students and having been a faculty member um, that's also um, and seeing how my students struggled and um, asked to have, you know, even a $20 book placed in the library reserve, uh, things like that also brought that to my attention or multiple students sharing a book. So when you say you lived in third world countries around the world, where did you live? I was born in Ghana. No and- way. <laughs> That's awesome. And so as we were talking earlier, your father was planning to work in another country. My dad was uh, working for a Goodyear tire and um, the rubber company. And so we, uh, he was in international and back in the sixties, that was pretty popular where the companies, these were starting to send folks out to establish um, business, um, expand big business all over the world. So I was born in Ghana. My brother was born in Lima, Peru. And then we moved to Ivory Coast, Cote d'Ivoire, went to French school. Um, and then we transferred from there to uh, Vienna, Austria. So we went from the heat of, of the equator to deep winter in Austria. I remember the snow, we were just blown away. But um, then we went to, I went to a French school there for um, the first time because uh, there, I think there wasn't an English speaking school. And then we moved to Bonn, Germany, where we were in an um, embassy school because, again, there was a Bonn was the capital of Germany at the time. And that was Goodyear, Germany. And then we moved back to Vienna um, and stayed there until I was 15. A little bit of both, a little bit of third world for a little bit of everything. So I moved to the States when I was 15. Okay. 
Well, that's amazing. So you and I were talking a little bit about this before, and you mentioned it in your intro that that has had a significant impact on your perspective, especially when you got into post-secondary, like when you were, when you were in Ghana and, and Ivory Coast, like what were you seeing other than the abject poverty, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. And very simple lives. Um, you know, there were no supermarkets in the sixties everything was bought at a, you know, a market downtown. My mother would get excited over canned food. Um, a lot of the folks that we interacted with, we were pretty isolated where we lived. And so we were, got to know quite a few folks that were from the area and um, just got to know the kids and, and um, you know, very different worlds in many respects. Um, and I could go on to some, some real good stories there. <laughs> oh, that'd be awesome. But um, it, real sense of community in those areas, right? Where everybody depends on everybody to, to survive and thrive, right? Everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how much of a culture shock was it for you outside the obvious of moving from Ivory Coast, Ghana to now Vienna? That was quite the shock uh, and language change, you know, um, a very cold environment um, and uh, just, uh, you know, weather, more weather than we ever had seen before. And, and the food, you know, everything, the language, food, culture, um, and the schools we changed. Um, um, at some point into the biggest shock was when we moved from Vienna to Bonn and we moved into that American embassy school. So that was a department of defense, a U.S. kind of environment. And here we were with American passports, but we weren't American really. And so here we are in a U.S. school with, under U.S. curriculum with U.S. kids. It, that was the biggest shock, actually, um, to be in an environment where you're supposed to be. You look like you fit in. You have the English because we spoke English at home. Yet um, we didn't know the culture at all. <laughs> was that was that really hard to navigate outside mm-hmm. the obvious? Yeah, it was. Yeah. And so looking back on those, how has that informed your perspective when you started working in higher ed? Well, um, that is that's what drove me or guided me. Cause then I went back after I came, we moved to the States. I went to school and then went back. Cause it was my big goal was to go back and live in Europe. And I taught Switzerland for a couple of years. And um, I, I got a sense that that would be something that's where I kind of got a sense. I really wanted to teach and be in, in, in language. Cause my background was actually German teacher. I have a German credential and then, um, in, and then English as a second language, right? Cause there's so many opportunities and there's so many people that are interested in learning English. And there were, and so when I came back to the States and got that master's in linguistics, it was, it opened the door to working because of the types of internships I had to do um, to get to know the populations in the LA County area where I lived, live and lived and lived still. And um, that there's a huge immigration, population here uh, really interested in learning the language um, for various purposes, either to um, some of the younger kids who are going to college, want to, you know, study. Others just wanted to be able to interact in their neighborhoods. Um, Spending time in their cultures was just lovely. So that, so that was not as foreign for me based on my background. Um, So, yeah. What what was some of the toughest things that you had to work through in being in a community college with, with the student population that you had? I've always been a kind of a uh, glass half full person. So 
for me was this is exciting. I'm excited to. Uh, I knew what I um, I was working within the curriculum that was required to help our students be more successful to prepare the college. Et cetera, or for whatever they, because I was doing some adult education as well. Um, and um, it was just all a great adventure. And uh, I think I really related well to my students. Well, I kind of have a sense of that just based on their feedback because of my background. Um, so I would really spend time with them trying to help them understand the culture uh, because it wasn't just so obvious that there's, it's as if it's an iceberg. You've probably heard that story. Um, the iceberg sits on top of the water, but underneath there's so much more. And so that was, I think, appreciated by the students. We had a lot of fun with it. I always try to come at a different angle, having learned so many languages myself and lived in so many cultures as well. Yeah. Back in the 90s, I'm not sure there was a lot of OER around, if there was any. Um, did, what was going through your mind when you found out that students were sharing textbooks or wanting you to put a textbook on loan in the library? You know, just as a typical faculty member, I had gone through school and just thought the same model was out there and then didn't get right away that the students were not purchasing the materials or they were photocopying them. They, one person would buy it and then they would photocopy them. And in some ways that was some sort of savings and, or not buying the book and sharing. And I, that really was a huge revelation to me realizing that there's no way six kids in a sitting in a row students would be able to share that book within that week of work, reading assignments and then the writing assignments. And so that's also what brought me into ed tech. Um, that's another area that I'm uh, um, that I um, am, uh, have been working in for a long time, and uh, is that the more one learns a language and one the more one is hands on with writing and 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 listening, the input type um, and the output aspects of learning a language is uh, was really engaging for the students to use the t technologies that were available at the time, which was really just a computer, but that they were more in writing there and as opposed to just writing with a pen. So that it was the fun part, I guess, of what, uh, of using some tool to help them create, which was, but um, yeah, but um, so it was, it, it was a time of experimentation and, and using as many library resources as possible, and then just trying to avoid that. As soon as I realized um, the the OER or the lack of OER and the challenges for um, course materials costs, I backed off of that very quickly. Even though our departments were requiring us to purchase certain or select certain books, um, we were just I would find alternatives or create my own. So you're creating your own even back in the in the '90s when OER wasn't really a thing. Yeah. Wow. Congratulations. That's interesting. I was going to ask you what kind of impact that that had on your, just your daily practice, right? Because if you're, I know how I feel even today when some of my students are coming to me and going, do I really need to buy the textbook? Do I really need to purchase this? And you know, it's a $150, $180 textbook. And my gut reaction is no, you don't need to, <laughs> you know, but having no OER option for them. It's almost like, well, you're just, you're sentencing them to spend all this money for a textbook. So I couldn't imagine back then. Yeah. Well, uh, I tend to be an all in type person. And um, so I just started creating um, resources, homework assignments, um, um, using, uh, using the LMS back then, which was very simple, but which was a web CT base, which is Vancouver. Okay. Yeah. Uh, 
product and um, and uh, just trying to resource as much as possible uh, so that they wouldn't have to rely on 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 paid materials. So I was creating so those interactive homework assignments were replacing the learning experience in the texts. Right. And what were your colleagues thinking of you doing all this? You know, most don't pay too close attention. Um, and so I was, they, uh, um, they knew what I was doing, um, but as long as the students were performing and doing well, they didn't, that didn't bother them. Right. Huh. Well, that's good. That's good. So talk to us a little bit, how you transitioned from being faculty, tenured faculty into what you're doing now. Well, as I mentioned, the ed tech piece really started to interest me. So I decided to start studying instructional design or online learning and teaching. So I went to UCLA's online teaching program and then um, earned that certificate and really enjoyed that. So I developed the first online courses um, at the school where I was at Fullerton. And then I um, switched over to a master's program in it. So I just you know, um, added more um, teaching and learning experience from that perspective, more learning science, design, pedagogy, learned just like a little sponge I was in those days. And um, the community colleges in California were developing the California virtual campus, the cvc.edu. And I was very active in that. We developed the first faculty training certificate program. And so I used my knowledge that I had just acquired and experience and developed several courses and taught them. So that was a lot of fun applying what I was to learn, had learned and also um, um, spoke a lot on it at different conferences. So that was really exciting to me. And so what I was doing at the institution at Fullerton where I was teaching, um, you know, I reached, I had, I felt as though I felt as though I had reached, reached, sorry, my benchmark or my milestone. I, been there long enough. I got tenure, so I was vested. And, but it didn't seem very engaging for me to stay. Um, and that's just me, maybe because I've moved so much. I've had many different positions. So um, I was ready to move on. And um, so I went to work for UCLA's onlinelearning.net and then eventually segued over to WebCT um, as a consultant for teaching and learning and using an LMS to teach and learn and worked for them for several years. And then uh, used these skills all packaged together to start working at um, Cal State University Long Beach um, as their uh, lead instructional designer, director of instructional technology at the time, which then segued. Um, then there were positions opening up with OER at, at the chancellor's office and at the Ch um, Cal State system. And so after eight years at Long Beach, I moved over. And after having done some more study, graduate work with a doctorate, then, you know, time to move. And moved over and I've been at uh, Cal State, the chancellor's office since 14. So almost six, seven, eight years, whatever. Wow. Congratulations. Oh. That's quite the trajectory for, not for those. All, what's that? Not planned at all, by the way. <laughs> not planned. Yeah. Every, every step is just whatever happens. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for those who are not um, up to speed on the, on the Cal system, when you say Cal state system, what does that look like? The California state system is the regional uh, comprehensive university system for the state of California. It was developed to provide as much as access to uh, higher ed, a four year liberal arts or 
other types of programs too, degrees uh, in the state. Um, the state is very large and growing. And initially uh, we had quite a bit of support from the state. So when my father, for example, went to uh, university in the University of California system, which is the R1 system of California, that, um, that there was no cost at all. And even when I was in the grad program in the 90s, that it was ridiculously inexpensive to go to school in a CSU, um, inexpensive because the state was subsidizing. So the point there was to um, to draw and, and graduate as many uh, of the California residents as possible, because we do right now teach 50, uh, provide 50% of the teachers in the state, 50% of the nurses, engineers, computer scientists, um, just a whole host of people have gone to our 23 universities in this in the state. And we have right now enroll up to 485,000 across those 23 universities. So it's a very large system, but and they're spread, their universities are spread from uh, just about below the Oregon border and uh, up north to down to San Diego, which is right near the Mexican border. The intention there in um, coastline also in, internally in the central part of the state is to have as much to provide as much access for any student who chooses to go to an institution of higher education um, and uh, and that that would be sort of in their backyard. And so they are concentrated in the more populated areas and then also in less lesser populated areas but really just to make sure that even the central valley which is very long and it can be quite rural has several choices for students as well so um, it's been it's been a commitment for the california um, the legislature for years so in this process, the University of California system, the regional one, or the R, not regional, the R1, research one, institutions were established first. That includes Berkeley um, and then um, UCLA, um, you know, San Diego, Santa Barbara. Those are all many UCs, Santa Cruz. There are quite a few of them around. There are 10 of them in the, in the state. And there are 23 uh, uh, comprehensive regionals like ours. So in those days, we didn't offer doctorates. We usually just offered bachelor's degrees and then some graduate level masters. But now they've um, we've expanded into um, practical doctorates um, and, and so that we don't compete with the doctorate programs in the UCs. And, in, and then on the other side, the state was, again, with regards to access, had has developed, um, created 115 community colleges. Again, trying to be as regional as possible. They're, they're scattered across the entire state. You can find, if you throw a stone, you'll probably find a community college available. So again, the same concept, access to education, um, whether it is a stepping stone to transfer, because 50% of the Cal State students our transfers from the community college systems program. Um, yeah. Uh, systems. Yeah. I guess our systems. And then, um, oh, and uh, they are, um, or they are vocational based. So they usually have, they run a couple different programs. They have the, you know, the GE general education line, and then they also run some vocational programs as well. So, yeah. So if, if one is interested, one can benefit from, lots of re opportunities in, in California. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. So um, 
with the, those 115 community colleges, are they pretty much two-year uh, mm-hmm. two-year colleges? Yep. Yeah. They have been traditionally and now. They're just in the last year or two, have, some have started to uh, offer four-year degrees. And this is a big step and it's still not completely fleshed out. And there's some, I think they're more piloting at them, the, just a few very select schools. They have to work with the legislature, you know, just all the governing bodies again, to make sure that they have the enough resources that, that potentially uh, the, the four-year institutions have, and they have not had. So um, that's happening right now. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And that's such a, that's such a testament to the, access and equity equity piece to it right because i'm just i'm just reading a, a book now and i got it in my table beside me called the new education by kathy davison i don't know if you've read it um really really interesting book and i'm actually in the chapter now called uh college for everyone and uh she's writing about uh experiences of two-year colleges and and I just want to read a little sentence from here because what you're saying is resonating so much with what she's written down here. And uh, she says that in regards to one two-year college being so successful, they were handing out Metro cards, right? So bus passes. And they're saying a, one, a one-way trip on a New York City subway costs 275 Almost everyone going to community college has to take the train, spending 550 a day. And at the end of the paragraph, she says, some sacrifices people just won't make in order to get an education. Feeding your kids is one of them. Right. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, that's absolutely true. Like 550 a day times five days, that's 30 bucks a week. That's, that's lunches for your kids, right? That's, that's buying food for your kids for lunch. And, uh, you know, I know as a parent, I'm, that's a no brainer. I'm not, I'm not spending the money on transit. I'm going to make the choice. Is that, that must be true in the, in the California context as well too, huh? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, uh, in the CSU, our average family of four, we get this information from the financial aid group the, from their FAFSA uh, applications. Uh, average family of four in the last few years has been making approximately 30000 a year. Um, yeah. And if a student goes out to be independent, so, you know, moves out of the house and because though our independent students, the average has been that they're making about 15 a year. So we have, we have a lot of students in the California state system, university system on Pell Grants, federal aid, and then also on um, state aid. And um, so they're being supported in many ways, but there's usually still a gap between what they're, they're funded and what they can afford. So, and it usually can range between two to three, $400. And so the, again, that's where the textbook gap can be, right? Lower the cost of textbooks so that that wouldn't impact their food, their rent, their gas, gasoline for the cars, their insurance, things like that. <laughs> So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that pretty soon the whole OER piece now becomes very social justice oriented towards those who have very little equity and access to an education system that, I mean, there's no guarantee, but an education system that will help them become higher wage earners or make a bigger impact on, on what they do as a family. Right. So it, it's, it must be really rewarding to be in that system and to see a lot of success stories like that. It is, it's very rewarding. Um, and, and, and we see it from the chancellor down to the faculty, to the staff. Um, 
um, because many of the students work for us, um, but the chancellor gets to meet students all the time and we have a very strong focus on student success. In fact, we have an initiative right now to increase our graduation um, numbers um, by 2025 and to lower the achievement gap or the equity gap to zero. Um, so that's an initiative that's uh, very, that is our only initiative, our main initiative in the Cal State University system right now. And so um, the Affordable Learning Solutions Initiative, which is what we call it in, in the CO, in the, in, in, in the Cal State system is, is a huge part of meeting the needs of our students to assist them in their progress to graduation. We have a big focus on basic needs, we call it as well, the food insecure and the housing insecure. And now with COVID, we've had the technology insecure perspectives uh, and then course materials as well. Yeah. I can imagine with the demographics that you're dealing with, the tech piece is, is an issue because they may not even have a piece of tech to access the material, let alone, you know, the Wi-Fi and, you know, the, 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 the connectivity pieces that we take for granted so often, right? Yep. We've had to um, invest quite a bit on many campuses, whether it was setting up a Wi-Fi station in the parking lot of some of the campuses so that students could at least drive up because they had relied on the Wi-Fi on the campuses in so many different ways. And so um, didn't make, might not have might not have it at home. So they were going to public spaces, maybe Starbucks, maybe libraries, maybe just our campuses. And um, and they were in, in order to continue to finish when we first went remote during COVID. Um, there was a lot of that activity also distributing MiFi's, Wi-Fi's um, type hotspots and also um, providing as many devices such as Chromebooks. Um, there was a lot. We spent several million dollars, I think 10 million overall in the system and purchasing as much hardware as we could. Wow. That's amazing. But I still think we didn't reach everybody. I think we hmm. still feel a need there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But it's still good. I mean, 10 million is obviously better than no nothing. Right. But um, yeah. Wow. That's such good work. You should be proud. I'm, I'm, I'm just glowing hearing your reports and that's uh, just, that's awesome. So tell me a little bit about your connection with Cascadia and, uh, and what you're looking forward to with the Cascadia conference coming up. I'm very excited about the conference to be partnering with, with um, our amazing partners in, in the different States on the West coast um, and just, the energy uh, that we're going to benefit from of, of the various aspects of initiatives and, and dedication to OER adoption and development and, um, and the course marking activities that are happening. There's so many angles that I think the folks that attend from California are going to really enjoy. I um, always have enjoyed working with um, BC campus and, and um, with other types of projects that we had through the Hewlett Foundation. And um, so we've, um, I've known Amanda for several years and I'm looking forward to um, continuing to support what you all are doing and what we're all doing as a collective. And, and I think um, we share a lot of resources through listservs and then also through these um, textbook or OER type um, repositories or referatories. And um, the value of that is, 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 is fantastic when you're trying to address such a cross section of 
disciplines that are being taught in our institutions. So um, it's, it's exciting. And I think we have a great community. And uh, so I'm looking forward to supporting it and then also uh, hoping to grow access from our perspective, uh, awareness from our, from the California perspective, uh, there's always a reason or a need to be more aware and to know more about what is available with um, regards to open educational resources and from either from the creation aspect of it or the adoption of what's already been shared, which is really super valuable. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Leslie, thanks so much for taking the time to be with me today. And um, this has been good. I'm, I might invite you back for a full-on podcast just to dig into more of your background. It's really fascinating to hear your backstory and to hear how you moved into uh, positions that you've been involved with and just the, the experiences that you must have had in every one of those places that you were in and, and, uh, and all, that, uh, all that great stuff. So thanks again for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Tim. It was delightful. I enjoyed it. You're welcome.